Um, thank you, everyone, for coming out. For those of you who I haven't had the pleasure to meet yet, I'm Susan Braun, the, the Executive Director of Commonweal. And I am going to introduce you to people as we go. And the first person I'd like to introduce you to is Kira Epstein. Kira is the new coordinator of the new school here at Commonweal. And I know has had an opportunity to meet many of you already, and we'll have that opportunity to meet more of you as we go along in this series and the others that are yet to come. So please join me in welcoming Kira Epstein. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome again. Thank you for coming. It's great to see you. I have had a chance to meet some of you, but I'm fairly new. I started in July. Um, I wanted to ask how many people have been, let's ask how many people have not been to the new school or know anything about the new school. Okay, so there's a few. And I guess what I just want to say is that uh, you're in for a treat. This is just an amazing uh, community that we have here. And uh, sometimes people ask me what the, what the new school is. And it's not a normal school. It's, we like to call it, uh, you know, we like to say that it's a culture or a community of inquiry. And that just means that we like to ask a lot of questions and sometimes hard questions. And we like to do it together. So uh, today you're in for a, a double treat. We have Michael talking about some of the insights that he uh, has picked up from the Cancer Help Program. That's just an amazing program. I know a lot of alumni are here. And we have Tim Weed and Debbie Daly, which is just fantastic. And the, I think Susan or Michael will talk more about what, uh, why they're here and what, what they've been doing with the Cancer Help Program. But uh, please come up and introduce yourself to me if you haven't already. I'd love to meet you in person. And we hope that you'll come back to some other uh, of the new school's events. Thank you, Karen. Thanks. Um, Today is the second in a series of at least six conversations that we're going to be holding around the theme of the end of life or the edge of life, as Rachel has been describing this to be. And this is, um, it is an inquiry for us. It is a way for us to begin to explore what conversations there are that we'd like to hold what are areas and topics that we'd like to explore more deeply? How can we at Commonweal be of more service to that which is emerging in our understanding of and our feelings about the end of life? And so, as Kira said, Michael is going to be talking to us um, today about the experiences with the Cancer Help Program, which is now 26 years long, I think, and what, Michael, 154 Cancer Help Program retreats have been held. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it is a week-long retreat, um, residential retreat program for people with cancer and or their loved ones support people who come with them, where we explore meaning, we explore healing, we explore um, community, and many people come away with quite a different view of their lives and what cancer means in their lives than they began the week with. And as Kira said, many of you here are alumni of the program from two months ago and from 20 years ago. And so we, we will, I think, ask for and welcome your insights as well. Um, Michael, I don't think Michael needs too much introduction. He asked me to introduce him, and I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. 
because there are thousands and thousands of things you can say about Michael Lerner and how I could do that without taking up the full two hours is, um, is a task. But Michael is the, the founder of Commonweal and who saw this place physically as a site where healing could, could be had and who has evolved that physical vision into an understanding of and programs surrounding healing the planet, what we can do with the environment, what we can do with the earth and growing things, and healing ourselves, whether it's from disease with cancer or just um, the, the part of the human condition that is always looking for wholeness and looking for healing. And we've explored that in 12 different seminal programs that we have right now. Come on in, Marian. Um, <laughs> and uh, Michael is a genius. Michael is a visionary. Michael is a friend. He's a wonderful human being to work with in, in this work that we do. And also, as you watch and are a part of the Cancer Health Program, holds um, with equanimity and with compassion, what it is that we see in the world and how it is that we might create change, small or large. Um, and then Tim, I would also like to introduce Tim Weed and Debbie Daly. Tim has begun being a part of the Cancer Health Program with us with his music, doing one evening of the program, uh, bringing out the music within us. Tim is a performing musician. He is a teacher, an extraordinary teacher. He taught my son how to play the blues on the guitar in 20 minutes. Now, he knew how to play the guitar already, but I mean, this was an amazing genre switch for, for a kid who likes heavy metal. Um, Tim and Debbie have performed all over the country, all over the world. Uh, Tim has created, you see him with his banjo now, has created an album of songs that he's composed, classical music for the banjo which you probably have not heard those two come together, and he has brought them together with extraordinary eloquence and beauty. And he will be playing with us and be a part of this program today. So enough of introductions. I welcome you all to be here with us and look forward to what today might bring. Thanks. Thank you, Susan. It is wonderful to have so many friends here. Um, and um, what, what we're here to do, as Susan suggested, is to continue something that Susan really launched at Commonweal with a, a community of our board members and staff and, and close colleagues, um, really to have a conversation about death. Um, it is not an easy thing in our culture to find safe places to talk about death. And um, our vision is of uh, a community, of uh, a state, of a country, um, where the conversation about death becomes something that is much more a part of everyday life. It was for millennia before modernity. We lost that capacity. And uh, surely others are contributing to this in many wonderful ways. But we just thought we'd make an effort to make a contribution ourselves with the extended Commonweal community, and particularly the community of, of beloved colleagues from the Cancer Health Program. I wonder if the alumni of the Cancer Health Program would just raise your hand so that people can see who's here. So you can see quite a few of our 
beloved friends from the Cancer Help Program are here and have been part of the Wednesday evening conversation in the Cancer Help Program about death and dying. Now, Tim and uh, Debbie and I are trying a complete experiment here because uh, usually I could have easily taken the whole time doing my talk, but one of the things that the Cancer Help Program creates uh, over the week that we spend together is an environment where the nonverbal aspects of knowing are very, very powerful. And I couldn't figure out how to do that in this room in a short period of time without asking Tim and Debbie to participate. So um, we're going to sing together. Um, and I like, uh, and by the way, the choice of songs, uh, please don't regard the choice of songs as a religious or ideological comment on, we like the music. Uh, we like the fact that somebody thought this about death and dying. So it may not be what you think, but if you sing along and if we raise our voices together, I think that would be a good thing. Is there an extra copy, Kira, of the words? I don't have one up here. Okay, thanks a lot. Just one. So, Tim and Debbie, I wonder if you would do Down in the River to Pray, and we'll start with that, and then I'll say something. Yeah. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown, good Lord, show me.
Thank you. Thank you. See what I mean about how it changes the room? Mm -hmm. So, as Susan mentioned, we've done 154 retreats of the Commonwealth Cancer Health Program over the last 26 years, and another 30 or so in Washington, D.C. at our center there over the last uh, 12 years. And for those of you who don't know the Cancer Health Program, as Susan mentioned, it's a week-long retreat that we do here. And we only take eight people at a time. Uh, and it's a week um, of yoga, meditation, support groups, massage, santre, primarily vegetarian diet, uh, and uh, individual sessions, and two evenings when we talk about choices and healing. And the two evenings that we talk about choices and healing are the evenings I'm largely responsible for. And we talk about five areas of which dying is one, but I want to set the context for you. We talk about healing itself. We talk about choices in biomedical mainstream therapies. We talk about choices in complementary or integral or alternative therapies. We talk about choices in pain and suffering, and we talk about choices in death and dying. And the way it works is that on Tuesday night, we do the first three, healing, conventional, and complementary therapies. And on Wednesday night, we talk about pain and suffering and death and dying. And that sort of curriculum is at the core of the Cancer Health Program. And what we believe is that if one integrates the best of healing work, of biomedical therapies and of complementary therapies that make sense, that there is a real possibility that people become healthier people living with cancer, which means that in the terms oncologists use, they have better performance status or functional status. And performance status and functional status, basically your general health, is known to be associated with extended survival. And so from our point of view, uh, that rationale is sufficient in itself to make it very sensible to make the choices that bring you into yourself physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, which is healing, to make really sensible choices in biomedical treatments, and then to choose complementary therapies, which are often intensive forms of health promotion, and to put them together in ways that make you a healthier person living with cancer, which in the mainstream medical literature is associated with life extension. And our experience from 154 of these retreats is that many, many, many people who were told they had very short periods of time to live keep coming back to our alumni days, keep showing up long, long, long past when people expected them to. And we don't believe that it's because what we do is what makes the difference. We believe it's who shows up. We believe that a certain kind of person who really wants to engage with their illness in a very unusual way, who wants to spend a whole week out at the edge of the world doing the cancer help program, doesn't represent the modal center of survival. That in fact they are far further out the curve and that sometimes they come out to that um, point at the end of the curve, which is complete spontaneous remissions from advanced cancers, which we see very rarely, almost never, but we see, you know, very rarely. But the spontaneous remissions represent the end of a survival curve. And if you can be interested in how far out that curve you can negotiate your way, 
without a sense of judgment if you don't get all the way out to the end, which is very difficult to do. Nonetheless, a lot of people seem to get out that curve quite a ways. So the reason I want to say this first is that the Cancer Help Program is about living as well as you can for as long as you can with cancer and when the time comes to die, to die as well as you can. So this afternoon our focus is on dying and to a lesser degree on pain and suffering, but I just wanted to set the context for what we're talking about. So Wednesday evening when we do the conversation about death and dying, uh, we start um, with asking a simple question, which I'll ask today, actually. Uh, which The question is, does anybody have any concerns about being in the room for this conversation? Because uh, I know for myself, after I had a heart attack about eight years ago, there were periods of time when if somebody wanted to come up to me and talk about their heart attack, I could not be anywhere near them. The level of anxiety that I felt in the face of that just made it impossible for me to be there. And so I respect the fact that in any illness journey, there are periods of time when one can't be near the conversation. So my question is, are there any people in the room today who have a high level of anxiety or concern about being here? Okay. So we, usually people are okay with it, and what I say to them is that it's a natural thing. Some people will express some anxiety, but usually manageable. So I'll say, raise your hand if it gets acute, and we'll deal with it. And you don't have to stay in the room. You know, If this is not the time for you to be here, we understand that. Then the second thing I say is, look, and I, I talk a little about the history of death and dying, and I talk about how in the history of the human species, this is a, a Neanderthal, so from they lived from 250,000 years ago to about 30,000 years ago. And my wife, Cheryl Patton, who is an amateur uh, primatologist and early physical anthropologist, tells me that the latest research is that most human beings have a little bit of Neanderthal in us. So uh, this is uh, one of our mothers or fathers um, from long ago. Um, so, but whenever you want to start modern human history, 100,000 years ago, for example, uh, for most of that time, people lived immersed in the reality of death. They were surrounded by death. Children died, women died in childbirth, infectious plagues, you know, starvation, whatever it was. So, they lived surrounded by death, and their cultures and their religions and their spiritual traditions were in part centered on making death a part of life that one could relate to in some <coughs> meaningful way. And then in the 20th century largely, 19th and 20th century, this bubble was created over part of humanity where the Industrial Revolution took place, and the most important, the Sanitation Revolution and the medical revolution, and all of a sudden it became possible in that small bubble part of the world to live into your 20s or 30s without ever seeing anybody die, or even beyond. So paradoxically, what happened to our feeling about death? Going from that immersion in death to it being a rare thing which usually takes place in a hospital as an emergency. What happened is that we became a great deal more fearful and anxious 
it was no longer a familiar. It was no longer a part of our life. And so I say to people, it's hard, as I said to you today, to find a safe place to have this conversation. And part of what Susan and I and our colleagues are trying to do is to make this a conversation that we can have as a culture um, and um, contribute to that. And uh, we don't know how to do it, so these are a series of experiments, these set of conversations that are taking place here. Because the, the, the grail for us, actually, with the Cancer Help Program and with these conversations is that we know that the Cancer Help Program really often transforms the experience of living with cancer for eight people at a time. But we'd like to make these things widely available. And so with the end-of-life work, rather than starting with small groups, we're starting with a room full of friends and say, how do we create these conversations? You know, how do we do that? And one other thing that I, I say to people is that one of the reasons it's hard to have the conversation is that there's a concern both of the person living with the illness and of the family that if everybody doesn't, quote, keep a positive attitude, it means that you've given up the fight for life and therefore you may be, by even exploring death, wishing on yourself a shorter life. And I understand that fear. I think it's a very natural uh, fear. Um, there's a beautiful line from the Buddha in the Dhammapada. He says, he says two things, actually, and they, they're both sides of it. The Buddha said, one thing he said was, uh, the meditation on death is the greatest meditation of all, which is in all the mystical traditions, uh, a core thing. But the other thing he said is, even the wise fear death. Life clings to life. So it's never easy for me to talk about death. Um, uh, I, I um, always have to overcome something in myself to do this. Um, if I were enlightened, I could probably do it easily, but I'm not enlightened, and uh, so it's a hard thing for me, um, and I have to get past something to do it. Um, and maybe that will change someday, but it hasn't changed yet. Uh, so I talk about how uh, there's this idea in the culture that you should keep a positive attitude. And in fact, positive attitudes actually work for some people at some periods of time um, during an illness. But it don't, they don't work for everybody. And they particularly don't work if you have cancer or some other life-threatening illness, and the time has come when you want to talk about it, and your family says, oh, mom, come on, you're going to beat this, just keep a positive attitude. And, and that is often the case in the Cancer Help Program, that people say, I'm ready to talk about this, I want to talk about this, but I don't know how to have the conversation with my family. I don't know how to start that conversation. So we talk about that, and Lenore Leffer, who's one of the co-leaders of the Cancer Help Program, uh, says that the way she did it in her family was she said, um, I want to have a conversation. She's not dying, she's, but you know, she said, I want to be able to talk to you about what I want served at my memorial service, what foods I want served. You know? And so you know, kind of a funny conversation took place that was focused around what she wanted served. It was a way to open the space to have that in a way that wasn't threatening to people. Uh, so what are the ways to start that conversation? We don't know that yet. 
but it's but Lenore's way is is one way that one could do that. Um, uh, so uh, the problem with the positive attitude, which as I say works for some people, but when you have a truly life-threatening illness, um, to ignore the possibility of death is often like trying to ignore the elephant in the room. And it takes a lot of psychic energy and the positive attitude can be brittle. And so it takes psychic energy to push that down. So what I say to people is, you know what? This doesn't mean you've decided that you're dying, not at all. But if you're able to talk about it, to express your concerns, to explore what's going on, then you can put it aside and you will have more psychic energy for healing and the fight for life because you're not trying to push this thing down. So we try to create the space where not only is it safe to have the conversation, but where we've addressed the very natural sense in the culture that you're supposed to keep a positive attitude about it and uh, to get past that. So then we go to the beliefs and feelings uh, about death. Um, and I just, writing this today, I realized that there's a third thing that I should talk, ask people about in addition to beliefs and feelings, which is their stories and experiences about death. It would take longer to do that than the beliefs and feelings, which are things that we can go around a room of eight and in the course of an evening uh, get to everybody's beliefs and feelings. But if we're going to have the conversation, let's start with ourselves. What are our beliefs? What are our feelings? So beliefs. Is death the end? Uh, is there something after death? Or is it essentially mysterious to you? Those are three possibilities. Um, and then the feelings. Uh, are you afraid of death? Is it death itself that you're afraid of? Or is it not death but dying? Or is it something other than death and dying, like leaving children or some task that's unfinished or something that's incomplete? Um, Rob, I wonder if you would just be willing briefly to say, as a Cancer Health Program alum who's lived with these things. Where were you when you came on the Cancer Health Program and where are you now? It's hard to remember where I was when I came, but I'm certainly in a much better, more expansive place today. I mean, as background for the folks who don't know, I'm an 11-year survivor of metastatic kidney cancer and uh, had to look death in the eye more than once. and. Um, I'm not sure how to respond to your question, except to say You're responding. That, that part, of, part of what was really important to me was not only to look death in the eye, but to understand that there was a part of me that, that wanted and welcomed it. And, and facing that was a lot harder than just facing death in the abstract. And uh, through that confrontation, I found uh, the realization that I really wanted to live. And it gave me a lot of energy to bring to bear that result. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Any other Cancer Help Program alum who wants to speak to this? I don't want to 
put anybody on the spot other than Rob, who I thought I could put on the spot. <laughs> anybody else have a reflection from this? Yeah? Um, when I meet people and they go, oh, you have such a positive attitude, that's why you're doing well, mm. I cringe because mm. the flip side means that if I start to get sick, it means I'm not thinking positively mm. enough. Mm. And um, I think so that's just one little piece. And um, I think creating spaces where people are not afraid to talk about death Mm -hmm. also creates spaces where you can become not afraid of death, which mm -hmm. is such a better way to live. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the great gratitudes I have mm -hmm. to the Cancer Health Program. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Let's open it up. Anybody else in the room who has been thinking about this? Yeah. Well, um, the first time I had cancer in 1993, I was 45 years old, and um, I was terrified, terrified. In those days, I used to imagine being dead, even though I knew this didn't make sense, but I imagined being in this very dark, lonely place, missing my children. Mm -hmm. That was just how I saw it. And my children were young then. And um, having cancer brought death into my life in such a real way that it never was in my life before that. Um, that, you know, when I got cancer again and I was... 60, whatever I am, mm -hmm. 63, um, it was easy. Mm -hmm. It was easy. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like I, I knew, I know all that time in between that I was really going to die, that that was mm -hmm. really <coughs> going to be how my life was going to end. Mm -hmm. And I actually, um, this time around, I'm quite, quite comfortable with mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. I'm <laughs> not looking forward to it, mm -hmm. but um, it's like, okay. You know, and I'm just so grateful that I had all these intervening years, and, mm -hmm. and I've lived, mm -hmm. and the children have grown up, and all, all those things. Mm -hmm. Thank you. One more person. Yeah. And it isn't personal with me, because I do not have cancer, mm -hmm. but we did uh, attend the Commonweal. I came with my husband, because some people had canceled in the East, and we lived in, in town, and, and so it was easy to fill those uh, uh, people who had canceled. But with uh, Vic... I think what uh, Commonweal did for him, um, he had always been very spiritual, but I think it, it gave him something positive to do before he died, which he perhaps was not always aware. But he did become a yoga and meditation teacher after having been here in, uh, at Commonweal. It did extend his life by many years, but I think that uh, when he died, as I said when uh, in Rachel's... Uh, uh, um, uh, meeting that he was complete and I really feel that and so mm -hmm. it opened the way for him to find whatever he was missing to mm -hmm. make his life complete mm -hmm. and I think <clears throat> as I said mm -hmm. he died and I feel he was complete yeah. within mm -hmm. himself yeah. so this gives you a feeling for what the voices are like in the room when we have this conversation um, and um, so I want to talk about something quite different from beliefs and feelings, which, um, uh, because in the Cancer Help Program, when we go around the circle, usually of eight people, usually there are two or three people who are quite sure death is the end. 
two or three people who are quite sure there's something after death, and two or three people uh, for whom it's essentially a mystery. So, um, so I try to do two things with it. First of all, we just accept it. I mean, we don't know, uh, but we just accept that. But I do point to the literature on near-death experiences. Now, I want to ask, has anybody in the room had a near-death experience where their body... Do you want to say a few words about it? Um, that's a challenge because it's not something that lends itself to our vocabulary. Right. Um, but when I was 15, mm -hmm. I got very ill. Mm -hmm. um, but no one could figure out what it was. Mm -hmm. So I'd done all these tests and was sort of awaiting the tests. And um, anyway, I, I was upstairs in bed and I started to die. And it was, this was before, I, I was certainly not familiar with Kubrick <coughs> or any of the literature mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. it. Um, it may have been by then, but it was just coming out, if it was. And, but it was very much the, you know, the tunnel, the light, the, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 it was sort of a rushing toward mm -hmm. this wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And um, then there was, for lack of a better word, a voice, kind of a conversation mm -hmm. that happened between me and other, but it, of course, it wasn't a conversation. It was just this experience of this exchange where um, I was asked to, if there was anything, if I was ready or if there was something I wanted mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'd like to say goodbye to my parents. Mm -hmm. And so I then was hovering over them while they were sleeping in bed. Mm -hmm. And just sort of let go of that, of them. And then sort of went then was really accelerating down this sort mm -hmm. of path. And then there was a, a moment where it was like, um, <clears throat> no, you need to stay here. There's more for you mm -hmm. to do here. Never mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there was a sense of disappointment. Mm -hmm. um, but acceptance. And then this sense of like, well, okay then. Life's good. That's, you know, mm -hmm. okay. This is mm -hmm. good. Um, and then I sort of woke up and felt a whole lot better and went mm -hmm. downstairs the next morning and everyone was saying, what, uh, you know, mm -hmm. what's up? And I was going, can I go to school? And I, I didn't feel like I could tell anyone. Mm -hmm. um, so for probably, I was 15, I'm 54 now, it was probably 30 years before I mentioned it to anyone mm -hmm. because it was just, I didn't, I didn't have a context, mm -hmm. and I didn't think anyone would believe me, and you know, whatever. And then I started working with this whole in this area, mm -hmm. and um, have told a few people. This yeah. is certainly exponentially increased. The largest group. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing it very much. Yeah. So, um, about five percent of Americans report near-death experiences, and. Uh, the literature on near-death experiences is extremely interesting. There is uh, an international association for the study of near-death experiences, um, and uh, and very skeptical researchers have looked into it, wanting to disprove it. Um, 
uh, and because we can now resuscitate, so many people have been clinically dead, there's a larger and larger population of people uh, who report them. Uh, it is a minority of people that report them, it's not a majority. Uh, but there are certain very common themes that you exit through the top of the head, you're looking down on, if it's in a hospital, people kind of doing a code on your body or uh, working to resuscitate you. Sometimes people come forward to meet you. Often there's a tunnel. You see a light or the Christ or the Buddha or whatever at the end. Um, and uh, uh, often people feel as they go that the, that the universe is made of cords of love, that, that, that it's just a, an extraordinarily peaceful and loving place to be. And then they're either asked, do they want to go back or go on or told, uh, depending on the situation. They go back into their body and then most of them, but not all, do not fear death again after the experience. All right, so what are we to make of that? It's science. What are we to make of that science? So different people have different ideas about it. One theory is that the oxygen-deprived brain creates this um, illusion. Another theory, obviously, is that it's, quote, real, whatever that means in that context. But there's a third thing which makes it even more complicated, which is Stan Groff, who some of you know of as a researcher who did a lot of work with LSD and then with holotropic breathing. And he found that with LSD and I think with holotropic breathing that he could recreate this uh, near-death experience in uh, cancer patients to whom he gave the LSD. And I believe it works with holotropic breathwork as well. So here's the question. Uh, what are we to make of this? I mean, uh, the oxygen-deprived brain, my, my thought is, if it turns out that the right answer is that it's the oxygen-deprived brain, who created that design feature in human beings? I mean, what a design feature that you deprive the brain of oxygen and that people come forward to greet you. Look, exit through the top of your body, looking down on the room. People come forward to greet you. You go through a tunnel of light. Who worked that out? Where was the survival advantage of that? I mean, talk about intelligent design. It's at least as interesting to me <coughs> that that might be the case. So I don't know what to make of it. But what I do say to participants in the Cancer Health Program is that what I've gathered from talking to a lot of people who work in this area is that you may be convinced that death is the end. Uh, but even if you are, if you wake up on the other side of death and you're still there, what is the operating instruction? Well, the operating instruction in a lot of the traditions is follow the light. You know, don't hang around, try to stay nearby. A lot of people in the literature, Kathy sent me a book on this, a really nice book, are confused about whether they're alive or dead on the other side. They, you know, they don't know. They're disoriented. This is completely new to them. But in many traditions, there is a light. And so I often say in the Cancer Health Program that if you only remember one thing from this evening as, you know, kind of pocket instructions, if you wake up on the other side of death, follow the light. So I think that's a good time to have another song. So let's do uh, oratorio. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat>
I lived for several years. Actually, Debbie and I both lived in Tucson, Arizona, which is quite close to Mexico and has a lot of uh, Hispanic tradition in Tucson. So we became very familiar with the Day of the Dead festivities, and they are that. It's a culture that believes that for these two or three nights that the dead come back and their spirits come back and they and they dance and they share sweets with them and and uh, it's a very festive occasion. So this is a song that uh, that I wrote while living there that celebrates that and um, real quickly I'll go through the words. It basically means cemetery, sanctuary, Oratorio de los Muertos, which main, means like a, a big song, a choir of the dead. All souls, all saints, it's the party of the dead. We make the sweets, encendemos las velas, we light the candles, bailamos en maravillas, we dance in marvel. Another word, maravillas, means the, the flowers that they decorate with, um, which are marigolds. Los ángeles y los fantasmas, the ghosts and, and the spirits, or the angels and the ghosts, one, one, giant, one big chorus harmonizing. Sempasuchil is the um, mixchotl word, which is the Aztec word for the marigolds as well, and they, they use that word interchangeably. And calaveras are the, the sugar skulls. And um, so they, they stay up for days making sweets and pastries to lay out, and they go and they clean the graveyard, and they basically live there for several days. And the last word is celebrating death and life. So.
I kind of like this. It's kind of working, you know? <laughs> it's really nice. Thank you guys very, very much. I'd kind of rather keep singing and not talk. <laughs> but I have to overcome that, I guess. <laughs> so, um, it's one thing to talk about the aspects of death and dying that we've been talking about. One of the most difficult transitions in the evening on death and dying is going from the questions about our beliefs and our feelings and near-death experiences and the history of it and finding a safe place, all of which builds energy. But we also talk about the practical aspects of death and dying. Um, and the practical aspects tend to make it quite concrete. And the energy sort of sobers in the room as we talk about the practical aspects. And I wouldn't do it from an energetic point of view if I was just trying to hold the energy high, which one could do. But it's so useful to people because at the end of the day, an awful lot of what people are dealing with are the practical aspects of death and dying and of pain and suffering. So the way that conversation goes uh, um, is, um, first of all, um, where do you want to die? Do you want to die at home? Do you want to die in a nursing home? Do you want to die in a hospital? Do you want to die in a residential hospice? Hospitals have gotten more and more difficult as a place to die. Um, nursing homes are usually not very nice places to die, unfortunately. I wish they were. Um, and so many, many people die at home, occasionally in a residential hospice, but those are hard to find. So that means uh, that the quality of your local hospice is a very, very key thing because some hospices are quite remarkable and others are quite low quality. And the way the reimbursement stuff has gone, um, a lot of the spirit has gotten squeezed out of the hospice process, which used to have a lot of spirit in it. And uh, so I encourage people, while they're not in crisis, while they're not actively dying, to inquire about their local hospice. How good is it? You know, Go in there and say, look, I'm not dying yet. I don't need you yet, but I want to know. One of the things that's happened in hospice is that because more and more people in cancer with cancer specifically, but with many diseases, are being treated later and later and later into the illness. And on top of that, they're using integrative therapies later into the illness. So hospice typically says you can no longer be using therapeutic treatments. You can only be using palliative treatments. Uh, so, uh, so people go into hospice later, which means hospice has less chance to work with them. And many of the benefits of hospice have to do with getting in earlier. So one of the things uh, we say is you do not have to have decided that you've given up on fight for life to go into hospice. Hospice has a set of services. Um, you know, you may, uh, many Cancer Health Program alumni have, quote, failed hospice. They go in, they go through hospice, and they come out the other end. So. Um, so we encourage people to look at the quality of their hospice. Now, a more recent refinement of this, which has been, because we're constantly learning from the people who come. We're basically repositories of everything people have told us, and we keep recycling it, is that palliative care uh, programs 
are often more sophisticated than the hospices about these services. So then we had to figure out, well, does palliative care only work in hospitals? But no, in fact, palliative care is sometimes available outside of hospitals and sometimes works in conjunction with hospice. So the question of what in your community is the combination of hospice services and palliative care services that deliver the best uh, help? Does everybody know what palliative care is? Uh, yeah, supportive care at the end of when you're not trying to cure, thanks you for that, when you're not trying to uh, cure or extend life, but to make people comfortable, palliative care. Thank you for that. Um, so, um, so we encourage people to look into that. Um, now, another piece which I'll put in here is the pain and suffering piece, because since what most people fear the most in dying is not death itself, but suffering, uh, I'm always fascinated, I'm actually always fascinated in general, that people spend hundreds if not thousands of hours researching therapies on the internet in order to stay alive because they're afraid of pain and suffering and death and dying. And they spend almost zero time researching pain and suffering and death and dying. And in fact, there's a huge amount with a very high payoff that comes if you know the literature and know practical wisdom on pain and suffering and death and dying. So the payoff is enormous in terms of, you know, the likelihood of benefit. Um, and so on pain and suffering, we talk about, first of all, getting the meds right, that, you know, pharmaceuticals for pain and suffering are one of the greatest gifts of modern medicine. Uh, but not everybody responds to them the same way. Not everybody has the same preferences. So we go through a lot on medication. Secondly, that anxiety and depression, which are often concomitants of cancer, uh, amplify the pain or suffering signal, and that it's much better to treat the anxiety and suffering, which drops the pain signal down because the meds are less potent than the pain meds, basically. So making sure that you deal with anxiety and depression. And then a whole set of integral approaches from relaxation to acupuncture, uh, marijuana, cannabis is often useful to people in that regard. Um, and the, uh, at the psychological, philosophical, and spiritual level, um, the questions of the meaning of the pain and your spiritual approach to pain and suffering are really critical. So on the meaning question, there's a fascinating literature going back to the Civil War that surgeons and physicians in war uh, situations discovered that the patients with big wounds who were getting patched up and sent home were suffering less than the patients with small wounds who were being sent back to the battlefield. Now, why is that? It was because the meaning of the pain was they were being sent back in harm's way. Whereas if you had a big wound and you were being sent home, even if, if it was a terrible wound, you were going out of harm's way. And so when you have a new pain with cancer, I then say to people, which is it more like? Well, it's more like the pain that's sending you back to the battlefield. So we think of pain as a purely physiological signal, but in fact, there's an amplifier called meaning, and it can be turned way up or turned way down. And so psychologically, what you want to do is to take the psychogenic dimension of the pain and desomaticize it, express it, 
be able to talk about it, release it, uh, use imagery with it, uh, do all kinds of other things with it, do attentional work with it. And, and Virginia Veach, who used to co-lead the cancer health programs and does amazing work with pain, would often in the cancer health program, and I'd watch her in the early days, just go around and work with people's pain. And in the room, you could see pain levels drop dramatically. And many people at the end of a cancer health program, by the way, uh, whether they do this or not, just the relaxation and the recreation of meaning in a different configuration mean that people often need less pain meds at the end of a cancer health program than they needed coming in. So, um, so uh, finally, on the spiritual dimension of it, um, uh, you know, we think of pain naturally as a negative, uh, a total negative. But in virtually every spiritual and mystical uh, tradition, what is the teaching? You know, wh what did Buddha say? You know, you know, life is suffering. You know, this cause of suffering is, you know, attachment. There is a path beyond suffering. It is the noble path and so on. In uh, the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which is even more ancient than the Buddha, the great sutra that says, the acceptance of pain as an aid to purification the study of great wisdom teachings, and complete surrender to the divine within us. These three things are yoga in practice. The acceptance of suffering or pain as an aid to our purification, the study of great wisdom teachings, and complete surrender to the divine in each of us. These three things are yoga. Not stretching, not breathing, not meditation, but of those, the first one, the acceptance of pain. So that may seem highfalutin or kind of beyond us, but ask yourself what parts of your life you've learned the most from, whether the easy parts or the parts that involve suffering. You know? Lo and behold, most of us would have to answer that it's the parts that involve suffering that in that sense purify us, that lead us toward who we really are, what constitutes meaning in our lives, however we configure that. So, through this conversation about the things you can do with pain and suffering, which is what people fear the most, that there are good meds, that you want to get them right, that they, you can deal with anxiety and depression, that you can use relaxation and uh, acupuncture and cannabis and work with meaning and work with the spiritual dimensions of it. And people begin to have a sense, that, look, I have some tools, you know. I have things I can do at a very practical level. It's not just high spiritual talk about this. It's stuff that I can actually do to make a difference. And it is reassuring. Just as it is reassuring that there are practical steps that you can take on death and dying. Uh, I guess uh, another key, key dimension of this, which we don't spend a lot of time on in the Cancer Help Program, and I regret it, but it's just for lack of of time is about grieving and about what you want to leave behind. Um, you're going to leave people behind who loved you, right? And they actually have the tougher gig, you know? It is easier to die than to be the person who's left behind who loves somebody and uh, is likely to suffer for quite a while. Um, and, uh, and there is such a thing as good grief. You know, there is such a thing as a grieving process that is done well. 
And particularly with children, though also with partners, it just makes a huge amount of difference if you've given some thought to the grieving process. We often think about grieving as something that's done after somebody dies. But in fact, we begin to grieve loss as soon as we're diagnosed with, you know, whatever it is. And we've had people come on the Cancer Help Program. I remember Keith and Debbie Smith, two amazing young people. She had an advanced uh, leukemia, and they loved each other dearly. And they had not been able to talk about the elephant in the room because they thought they had to keep a positive attitude, you know? So the big gift of the Cancer Help Program to them was that they were able to grieve this coming loss in their lives. So they did a lot of the grieving work while Debbie was still alive. And it had, Keith still went through an unbelievably difficult time, but, but a huge amount was done. So that whole question of grieving, and above all for children, as I said, and there's a lot written and thought through about how to help children with you know, before somebody dies and after with the grieving process. And again, it's one of these things nobody pays attention to. But goodness gracious, is it worth paying attention to the grieving process. And the final thing um, on this, in this segment is, um, is what do you want to leave behind, you know? Now, one lovely tradition in Judaism, and perhaps in some other traditions as well, is called ethical wills. And an ethical will is a statement that you write that is what you want people to know was what you'd like to leave of your values or, you know. In other words, it's not just how you want stuff divided up. That's the, the will will. But it's what, what do you want to say to people? Um, and I thought about that because um, that can take the form of letters to individuals, you know. But I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking to myself, you know, living with heart disease, I never know when my last day will be. It's, you know, I don't know. Uh, but it could be any day, right? And I'm healthy as far as I know. I've done really well with it. But I had a heart attack, and I, I never know. And, of course, none of us ever know. So I was thinking to myself, uh, and I, uh, I was thinking to myself, you know, there's some things I'd like to say to my son that I haven't said to him, you know? But I'm not sure I want to say them to him right now. So maybe I want to write him a letter, you know, that I just put away. That is what I'd like to say to my son, you know. And what would I like to say to my wife? And what would I like to say to my brothers? And what would I like to say to the Commonweal community and a lot of other people? So that question of what we want to leave, you know, um, and and that relates to. Uh, how we want to be in this period of time, because that has an awful lot to do with what we want to leave. Um, um, after all, we're not dead yet, right? And so that period of time can be an incredibly productive, even transformative period of time. So the question what we want to leave relates very deeply to how we want to be. Um, there's a beautiful line in the Bhagavad Gita that says... Uh, better your own dharma badly lived than somebody else's dharma well lived. Because if you live somebody else's dharma, it causes great suffering at death. Isn't that a beautiful line? Better your own dharma badly lived than somebody else's dharma well lived. Because if you do the latter, it causes great... And in other words, you suffer at death 
because you weren't who you were supposed to be, right? Well, even if you've spent three quarters of a lifetime not being who you are, any of us um, who figure out at a certain point that it's worth trying to be who we really are intended to be, it reduces suffering at death, you know? At least we took our shot at it. At least we did that. I was thinking this afternoon, how many deaths do we have in our lives? Uh, how many losses do each of us have that at the time feel like death or near death? And some people would say, worse than death. How do we hold those losses? Uh, how do we hold death? Um, You know, I think of all the different spiritual and philosophical traditions about this. You know, the Stoics who just thought you should face death. The Epicureans who said, we're here and then we're gone, so just enjoy. Um, the yoga tradition, like so many of the mystical traditions, lead us from the unreal to the real, lead us from the darkness to the light, lead us from the fear of death to the knowledge of immortality. And in what sense immortality? Is immortality a belief in life after death? Or is it, as Ibn Arabi, the great uh, Sufi mystic, believed, that as the Gospel of Thomas also. Uh, in Gospel of Thomas, um, uh, Jesus says, uh, God's kingdom is spread out over the earth and men cannot see it. So Ibn Arabi and Thomas uh, both talk about um, immortality, not necessarily as being life after death, but reaching the point in life when you can see God's kingdom spread over the earth. And therefore you are participating in the immortality of God's kingdom. Um, the Sufis have a wonderful line. Uh, they say, paradise is for fools. And what they mean by that is that anybody who wants to be in paradise wants to be in a place that's separated from God because if there's paradise and then there's not paradise. And so paradise can't be complete connection to God. And so if you really want to be connected to God, you don't want to go to paradise, you know. So uh, these questions, this is the thing. These questions about pain and suffering and death and dying, it's not only worth addressing them because uh, it makes it easier to die and, and we are more skillful about pain and suffering, it is because pain and suffering and death and dying are in all the great spiritual traditions the portals to the deepest knowledge of what it means to be a human being. They are the portals. And so if we hide from those and suppress them and push them down, uh, we're not really having the chance to, um, to be ourselves. I think the last thing I'll say, and then we'll have a little more music and, and have a conversation some more. Um, as Susan mentioned at the start, I've been fascinated for, you know, 34 years at least by the relationship between the, our personal wounds and the wounds of the earth. Um, and so, and I've learned in the Cancer Help Program, know from my own experience, but certainly 
that many people come on the Cancer Help Program and when they're listing the things that preceded the illness that were really hard for them and they think might have contributed to the illness, they often list their deep grief at what's happening with the earth. They often list it as a major, like along with job losses and divorces, they list what's happening to the earth. So uh, I think, and many of us have, have thought about this together, that our grief about what we are doing to the earth and participating in, in uh, this age of extinctions and the dying of so much of life, um, I think this is a huge psychic burden that many of us carry. And so not only is the earth living with an iatrogenic, life-threatening disease, or life on earth, I should say, not all life, but the beauty of the current creation is living with an iatrogenic, uh, life-threatening disease. But a lot of that beauty is dying. The polar bears at the North Pole are being replaced by drilling rigs and all the rest of it. And, um, and I feel that there's this deep interface, which would be a whole other conversation, but I just want to mention it, between what we can learn from our personal wounds about how to live with planetary wounds and what we can learn from the planetary wounds about how to live with personal wounds. And I would go beyond that to say, what can we learn from our personal experience of death and dying about the forms of planetary death of so many exquisite species and vice versa, back from the planetary death to the personal. Um, again, I've been reading this Sufi mystic Ibn Arabi, so I'm immersed in him. And um, one of the things he says is that, that, that the whole cosmos is a constant creation of the divine, constant creation, and that every moment is God's breath. And so, I'm trying to hold what is happening to the earth as one more of God's breath, you know. Um, that even this is part of the breathing in and out of the universe. But the point is, that's just my way of holding it. But the point is, I think not only do we need conversations about personal death and dying, I think we need conversations about what's happening to the earth because we hold that with and sometimes as much psychic strain and as much cost as we hold um, our own mortality. So could we sing I'll Fly Away?
nice. I like that. Questions, comments, thoughts, reflections. Yeah, Michael, I'd like to hear a little more about your musings and thoughts about the planetary personal trauma. That that's a really <coughs> seems really fertile. Well, just out of curiosity, how many people here carry the planetary struggle as a, a, a fairly substantial psychic thing, just out of curiosity? Yeah. So we can see, you know. Um, and what's the name of the wonderful woman who's done all that? She's done a thing here at Commonwealth, too. I'm just blocking on her name. Joanna Macy. Yeah, Joanna Macy. Um, has done wonderful work with this. Um, so it's not a new subject, but like our personal death and dying, we, I mean, I'm writing a Commonweal letter right now, and, and you know, so the climate change thing is obvious, but behind climate change are, you know, toxic chemicals, electromagnetic fields, which Marianne and her colleagues are doing such good work on. Uh, you know, nanotechnology, uh, biotechnology, genetically modified organism, artificial life, you know, um, and then just uh, all the other forms of suffering that we are inflicting on the earth. And so, you know, the work of uh, hundreds of millions of years of creating all this beauty is being eroded at the very least. And so it's always been change, right? It's always been change. And for us to be attached to this particular manifestation of the creation may be a mistake. I mean, there's a point of view at which you just say, you know, the next thing will be beautiful too, whether or not it includes human beings. But there's, you know, there's that line in the, in the Bible about, um, I forget, but God's saying something like, uh, you know, the bad stuff has to come around, but don't be the person that brings it. Does anybody remember the line? I, I'm not saying it right, but uh, you're like, you know, don't bring it down. Uh, and and um, so, um, I don't know, I just, I feel a lot of personal suffering about it. To, to focus the question more, what I'm, I guess what I'm really interested in is, you're, you, you said that it's possible to bring the wisdom of feeling the global trauma into wisdom in our lives. I mean, I've done workshops with Joanna, and mm -hmm. it's very good to open up to the feeling which is often just below the surface. But I'm wondering about beyond that, what, how that wisdom informs our own mm -hmm. trauma work. Well, I think, um, I'll tell you what my hope is. Uh, I know from direct experience with, you know, 1,200 people in the Cancer Health Program and in my own life that, that these life-threatening illnesses and the suffering that goes with them can bring us personally closer to the light, right? And so when I look at what's, you know, Paul Hawken says in Blessed Unrest that if you look at the problems, you can't help but uh, despair. But if you look at the people all over the world working on the problems, you can't help but feel hope. As a matter of fact, somebody just walked up to me and gave me a beautiful little uh, 
little book that she's working on. Um, Lorraine Almeida. Lorraine, where are you? Okay. So she gave me this book, and I just opened it. And it's a little... I'll leave it out. But it's a little fable, illustrated fable. And, um, and with beautiful images. And it says, When the Earth had reached its peak of maturity as a planet, it was full of diversity and blossomed with its many life forms. Human civilizations that began as simple communities grew to enormous numbers and complexity that caused them to collapse. Some cultures overcame problems that overwhelmed others. Eventually there arose the question of whether or not the planet was now on the brink of collapse or at the edge of a transition to a new form, a new way of life. And then there's a beautiful image of a woman uh, holding the earth and a flower and just filled with light. And it says, much of humanity turned inward and discovered an aspect of divinity in itself that might heal the earth's spirit with love for all life forms, as well as love for their small planet. It became possible for many to face the unknown future. All right? Well, that's what I'm talking about. Just hearing those words, it has the effect of potentiating the same kind of shift in the way we hold the planetary crisis that the conversations among us can have on our personal death. So because we know from our personal experience that this suffering and facing death can bring us closer to the light, right? Then the question is, at a civilizational level and a planetary level, can the civilizational and planetary suffering do the same thing? And I love the Bhagavad Gita's line about how in every age when evil uh, seems to be triumphant, I take a body and return. Uh, this is Krishna speaking to Arjuna. And I believe that's what the prophets and avatars are about, that there's this continuous process, not only in us individually, but in us at a civilizational and planetary level, where when the evil or the suffering gets to be too much, the divine takes a body and returns. Now forgive me, this is my own, I'm not enforcing this on anybody, it's, it's my aspirational mythology, let's put it that way. I'm not sure I believe it, but I, I want to believe it. Or to put, I choose to believe it because it's the most interesting way to live. But I, um, but I also have a, a skeptical side that is, I don't believe everything I think, you know. Uh, so, uh, so, so, but that sense that, um, that part of what makes it possible for me to live in this period of time, that some of you know I love this line from Václav Havel, that the difference between optimism and hope, the great play, uh, Czech playwright and statesman who spent a lot of time in communist prisons, and he said, optimism is the belief that everything is going to go right. He said, hope, by contrast, is a deep orientation of the human soul that can be held in the darkest of times. So it's hard to be optimistic when you have cancer or, when you, or an advanced cancer or when you are uh, facing what's happening to the earth. It's hard to be optimistic. But hope, by contrast, 
is a deep orientation of the human soul that can be held in the darkest of times. And so that's that movement back and forth between the planetary wound and the personal wound and the planetary death and the personal death uh, that I think we can learn from. Yes? Where, where I've come down on this personally, um, because I feel what you're describing, this, this, this um, temptation to despair mm -hmm. um, about the earth and about, you know, poverty and, you know, all that's happening in the political scene and all the rest. And where I've come down personally is that I keep remembering the line of Mother Teresa. She said, you don't have to be successful. You just have to be faithful. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's not so much a theological statement mm -hmm. as it is saying we each have to find our own deepest value and mm -hmm. be faithful to mm -hmm. that. That's Nietzsche beautiful. said um, that we must find the intersection between um, our own deep gladness and the world's deep hunger. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't save the world, but I can do that. That's I, right. can, I can commit myself to discovering my own deepest value, my vocation, if you mm -hmm. will, mm -hmm. and then to living that as best I can. Mm -hmm. with And trusting that if I start down the wrong path somewhere mm -hmm. as I'm trying to follow that, somehow life will conspire to put me back mm -hmm. on the right Beautiful. path so that I'm doing Thank and you. That's, all, that's, 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 the, that's my hope. Well that's said. Thank you. Other thoughts, reflections? Anybody else? Yeah. I um, would like you to speak a little bit more on the grieving process. I work in cancer, and I work very closely with end-stage cancer patients. <coughs> I would like to be able to facilitate their... To have them be a little more comfortable sooner rather than later, have them be a little more comfortable with it, and and also to facilitate conversations with their spouse or their, as you say, you know, I think that is, I can see that it's difficult for pe people that are dying to to accept it uh, and to be able to talk to their spouse because they're afraid it's going to hurt their feelings so much that they don't want to talk about it and. Mm -hmm. But I think it's so important to talk about. And mm -hmm. So, any thoughts you might have? Thank you. And I'm going to ask Susan in a minute, Susan Braun, if she has any thoughts on it. Um, I'll start with a few thoughts and give Susan a chance to reflect since I uh, wasn't prepared for this. Um, but I'll, I'll say the piece I'd like to say. Um, um, I try never to tell anybody uh, that they should start preparing to die or that they, it is a time that they started figuring out how to grieve. Um, because um, my father, who lived 10 years with a cancer people thought would kill him in a year or two, uh, wasn't ready to die until his last breath. And my mother who lived through a cancer for 20 years, was prepared to die for 20 years, right? And so I have enormous respect for the autonomy of that decision. So my own instinct is that it is when people ask that it's helpful to offer these things as opposed to looking at their situation when we think. Um, so we may have an aspiration um, 
for someone that we wish they could begin to prepare. But it may not be where they are. Um, it may be useful for people to be invited to attend conversations where these issues come up and you can say, you know, it's all very individual when we want to do this, but at that point, um, there are resources. Susan, what are your thoughts on the question of grieving? Well, um, first of all, with respect to the conversations about when it is time for us to let go, that's going to be the topic of our next conversation here. Um, Shelley Adler from the Osher Center at UCSF is going to come and talk to us about those conversations, about how people decide and with whom they decide about fighting until the end compared to at what time they are ready when, how they are ready to, to let go um, and to uh, contemplate their death perhaps in a different way. And we'll be talking about ethical wills. But I want to uh, underscore what Michael said about the individualness of, of those decisions. And not only when that person is ready, but how often we hear from people that they are making decisions about how far to go in, in fighting towards the end because they want to please their doctor or they want to please their family member or they want to, you know, please someone else or take care of someone else's feelings. So within that individual time frame comes, I think, too, the questions about is, is the person acting in their own from their own best self, in their own best interest, with their own needs in mind? And how can we facilitate that being something that doesn't feel selfish but feels meaningful and important? So those are a couple things I'd add. Before you go too far away, Susan, let me just ask you, as you listen to the conversation so far, mm -hmm. any thoughts or reflections um, that it stimulated in you? Oh, too, too many to, to count. And... What I think is real interesting is the, the breadth that this conversation has taken on. And uh, I'd be curious to know from people, too, as we explore this series going forward, what are some of the pieces of this conversation? Because Michael does such a nice job of, of showing us, I think, the landscape that we're working within. And we do that on the Wednesday night in the Cancer Help Program. But for you all to give us some reflections about what pieces of this might be helpful and interesting to move into uh, with more depth and or other pieces that we could add to this, because I think that that would be real helpful to us, too. So if there are some suggestions from all of you, we welcome them. Yes. Let's any suggestions, Kathy? Yeah. I did not hear at all about forgiveness. And that seems a huge thing. Yeah. Wonderful. Forgiveness. Excellent. Alan? Um, I really appreciate all the gems that you've brought forth, and they're subject to a lot of thinking on my part. But I have a question. Uh, looking around at this audience and no noticing the gender imbalance, uh -huh. <laughs> I'm curious to know, in the Cancer Health Program, how many men come to you and how many women? It's, it's uh, always mostly women. Uh, and it's moreover, it's in almost all health and healing, integrative stuff. Women are the pioneers of this work. You know, they're out looking before the men get there. And so, um, um, so that's widely true, not just here. Well, one other observation, mm -hmm. as a physician for 50 plus years mm -hmm. uh, and seeing death in different varieties, yeah. um, 
I think that what you do with the Cancer Health Program is relatively unusual in terms of death because prior to mm -hmm. 100 years ago, most deaths were very acute and very That's right. abrupt. And now we're dealing with chronic mm -hmm. issues. That's right. Thank you for that. Other thoughts? Yes. One thing that you didn't mention that I would be very interested to um, hear your thoughts on and that I think would also be very worthwhile discussing in the Cancer Health Program um, is uh, talking to your doctor. Is what? Um, talking to your doctor mm -hmm. about dying. And we were just talking about it as we carpooled up here. Um, you know, not only do we have to make choices about when to say no to treatments anymore, but, uh, you know, the doctors who, who offer treatment mm -hmm. right until the day of your death, and are they scared? Mm. Are they unable to talk to you? What, what internal conflicts are they feeling? <coughs> Is there a way to get across that and really, you know, um, tell your doctor what your wishes are and then really believe that those wishes will really be respected? There was an article or... I don't know, one article, series of articles in the New Yorker, Sully sent me, sent me um, recently on, you know, that, that, that told the story of several awful deaths that didn't have to be awful. Mm -hmm. And um, they were partly awful through the collusion of the doctors. Mm -hmm. um, it was a great article. It was a great article. Um, um, I made my children read it. And you're a doctor. And I'm a doctor, but I made them read it because they have my, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they're named in my advanced directive. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and anyway, I think there is there is like so much to talk about there because it's like once you're in the system, you just get ground up. Um, and uh, actually. There was a very interesting article that came out recently in one of the medical journals <coughs> where they hooked people who are still in care, in care that was aimed to save their life, but they hooked them up to a palliative care system. Right, we saw, the, we saw the article. Yeah. And they lived longer. They lived longer. They lived longer with, of course, a better and they chose life exactly. intervention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Other comments? We want to, in uh, response to Susan, go ahead. To, yeah. um, Ian and about what you've just said, one of the conversations we're going to have, although we can't have it in person because he's on the East Coast and traveling a lot, is Tom Smith, Dr. Tom Smith at the Medical College of Virginia, who has done a lot of the pioneering work of the communications between, especially in oncology, but between doctors and patients, and exactly what, what the dynamic is, and I mean, not that it's always the same, um, about having that conversation with physicians, how, how it is that physicians often are, are driving towards the end like that. Um, their own personal feelings, too, about helping in these conversations or not. And so Tom and I have been in dialogue about this. He's been writing quite a bit about it and has a really interesting new paper coming out about that. And so he is going to be one of the recorded conversations we'll have. Marian. Yes, it, it, it seems um, um, the place between life and death is a very fertile ground. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, to have a little sanctuary in the room to explore, to keep in the place of discovery, whatever way we can, mm -hmm. um, because it, it is a, a unique opportunity to learn more. Mm -hmm. And I understand that, Susan, yeah, go, I just go ahead. Say, um, 
Marion Weber, I don't know if you all know Marion, has really pioneered group Santray. We have a group Santray that we've begun using here at Commonweal. And Marion has agreed to work with us with some of you who have signed up for this series and others, if you want to leave your name with us, to do some group Santray work around the, these issues. So, so thank you, Marion, for that. We're really thrilled about that. Yes? Yeah, and, uh, concerning the planet, and uh, I know how <laughs> deeply I feel about it, but just as a pragmatic thing to do, I do meet with people, with other people, and we do, uh, through different environmental groups, we do mm -hmm. try to work to, uh, um, to change things. I mm -hmm. spent the day at the Audubon uh, uh, yesterday talking about all the things that have happened with mm -hmm. uh, Marine Conservation League and Audubon. And I, I get a great deal of satisfaction knowing that if this, kind of like Mother Teresa, if I do this little piece mm -hmm. today and tomorrow mm -hmm. and every mm -hmm. day, and also that you have to have people who feel as you do yeah. because the things that are happening to the planet are so painful. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do get a good feeling mm -hmm. from doing the things that I know. I'm not going to change everything, but I can't change mm -hmm. this much. Mm -hmm. And you are the biggest example of that mm -hmm. uh, because that's exactly what you do every day. And uh, so I think it's important to be with people who have that positive attitude can do, and that they will do, even if it's only going to change a little. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to get people who haven't spoken before, so forgive me, because we're getting to the end. Yeah. Um, as somebody with chemical sensitivities, I've been aware for decades about, okay, we're poisoning the planet, and some of us just happen to be getting sick first, and the whole canary in the coal mine thing was only useful to people who had never even thought about it before, because for me, it was like, uh, when the canary fell over, people's behavior changed, mm -hmm. and the canary died. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't very useful to me because I didn't see mm -hmm. the collective society changing, mm -hmm. and yeah. I didn't want to be the canary, and I went to offer to you what a friend offered to me, was she said, Tina, I see you as a brown pelican. I went, yes! Because when mm -hmm. I was in high school, the brown pelicans, mm -hmm. like everybody else at the top of the food chain, were... Mm -hmm. Dying from DDT, laying eggshells, laying mm. eggs without eggshells. And I thought it was very racy to have a day glow pink ban DDT bumper sticker on my chemistry notebook. But the point, of course, is that they did ban DDT. And during the season, you go out to egg at a Brighton, and there's pelicans every day. Yeah, yeah. So that's happened in my adult lifetime. So that's, that's one of the places I get hope. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much for that. Uh, last comment, yeah. Okay. yeah. One thing I find myself longing for mm -hmm. is, um, for lack of a better expression, death education. Mm -hmm. As you were speaking, I was thinking about sex education. Mm -hmm. We don't want to have sex education because somehow we think that mm -hmm. by not talking about it, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and as someone who's recently experienced death for the first time, uh, I found myself operating by instinct, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I didn't care for at all. Mm -hmm. And having known that everyone goes through it, and yet not having a real sense mm -hmm. of what to expect, yeah. and also what to say, and when to say mm -hmm. it, and how do you bring up the conversation. Mm -hmm. That's what's come out of this for me today, is a longing for 
mm -hmm. the death education, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we begin to talk about the real practicality, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the body and mm -hmm. so forth. And all mm -hmm. that. That Thank you very much. Well, we're going to, we need to close now, forgive me, but, um, and I'm going to ask Tim and Deb to do Angel Band as our close in just a minute, and I'm going to just say a couple of other words. Um, first of all, just thank you all for coming. Um, you're contributing a lot to our efforts to create this conversation. Secondly, um, we depend on your uh, generosity to keep this going and there is a little glass bottle on the front desk and so if you are able to leave a contribution uh, the new school really needs your support uh, so whatever you can do to contribute will make a big difference um, just in continuing to do this work um, thirdly if you want to be part of the group of, I think now, 30 or so people who want to be more intensively involved on a sustained basis with these conversations, hear about the Santre opportunities, for example, or other things that we're going to try to do. Kira, where is that list? Is that sign-up list? It's where? It'll be up in the front next to the jar. It will be up in the front next to the jar. Uh, if you're not on our email list and you want to hear about the new school, uh, please sign up. It's a great way to stay in touch with what we're doing. So I'm really grateful to you all. Um, this has felt good to me. I hope it's been useful to you. And um, special thanks to Susan Braun for her vision and creating this uh, community of work. And to all the board and staff people who have supported us, Susan, and friends. And I'd love to end with... Tim and Deb doing Angel Band. <laughs>